go. Thank you, Peter. It is a great delight and joy to be with you. Um, and as Peter has shared, we have two uh, children, Eden and Jethro. Uh, Eden, as you know, is serving an internship as well as studying at GWC. And uh, Jethro, our son, is 18. And uh, it's just a great joy to be part of the advanced movement of churches. Uh, many of you would be very familiar with Rigby and Sue. Uh, Wallace, who are in KZN this weekend at uh, Steve Rothquell's church. I don't know if you guys have had Steve uh, in your midst. Steve Rothquell leads a church up in KZN. And then obviously, as you know, Luke and Lauren are in East London at Arno's church. Um, Arno and I share the leadership for the Advance Hub over the Eastern Cape. And so we are uh, regular visitors to the Western Cape. And we were recently here um, spending some time together with all the African leaders and uh, it's just such a joy to be part of a family of churches invested in advancing the gospel and strengthening church-to-church ministry. And so that's why I am here this morning. Um, we were also down for Eden's 21st on Friday. And so um, I have to pinch myself that I'm a father of a 21-year-old. But uh, it is what it is, and we have to suck it up and, uh, and, and I guess get on with it. But uh, let's turn our attention to, to the Word of God, and, uh, and I just want to um, entrust this moment to, to the work of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit wrote the Scriptures, and, uh, and so as we uh, sit under the authority of God's Word, we are submitting our lives to the work of the Spirit. Amen? And so I want to preach uh, this morning from 1 Corinthians chapter 6, and uh, it's not a chapter that uh, you would necessarily or regularly visit uh, because it's rather impactful and uh, straight to the point and in some ways controversial. But what I want to highlight to you before the controversy is that chapter 6 presents us with six questions, six rhetorical questions. We're not going to look at all of them, but the first three, just by way of uh, noting, and the first three questions have to do with internal conflict in the church. Uh, the church in Corinth was rather messed up. It's a, a messy church, and in many ways you don't want to be like the Corinthian church. But uh, there were these internal conflicts, and they were taking the conflicts externally and suing one another. And so Paul was uh, disappointed in this behavior, and he said, when there's internal conflict in the life of the church, when there's sin against one another, you don't take it to outsiders, you deal with it in the church. If there's a crime, however, let outsiders deal with it. And so he corrects it, and he says, do you not know that this is not how you should behave? So those are the first three questions. Do you not know? Do you not know? Do you not know? But the second set of three questions follow the same formula. Do you not know? And they're directed not at internal conflict, but at sexual immorality. And so here are the three questions, verse 15, 16, and 19. He says this, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? The first question. Secondly, verse 16, do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? Verse 19, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit? Part of the problem here is this issue of forgetfulness. The question demands the implication, do you not know? They have forgotten something critical. 
And so this wasn't just a moral issue. This is a theological issue. Do you not know? You have failed to know something. There's something you've forgotten. There's something you should know. And so he wants to correct a, a moral problem with some truth. He wants truth to dispel darkness. He wants truth and good theology to bring about light and correct living. We sometimes call this gospel amnesia. When you've forgotten that the faith that you've embraced, uh, the Savior who you received also transforms our lives, not just our confession, but our lifestyles. And so part of the problem with the Corinthian context is that the Corinthians had become Christians out of a very pagan culture, and they were wrestling with detaching themselves from the culture. They were wrestling with the issue of how the culture had shaped them for so many years. And now that they've received Christ, how are they to live that out? And so some of the members of this church were still visiting pagan temples. At the center of the city of Corinth was a huge pagan temple, the temple of Aphrodite. You might have heard of that. And so some of the Corinthian members were still visiting these places, especially this place called the Temple of Aphrodite. And the problem was this, although the church was in Corinth, too much of Corinth was still in the church. And so Paul wants to give us some rich truth to help shape this community. And he wants to actually shape their understanding of how they should view their bodies. If you remember those verses that each had an emphasis on how we should view our body. What is the Christian view of the body? And so let's read all the verses in their context, and then we're going to do a contrast between the Corinthian view of the body and the Christian view of the body. So starting in verse 9, he says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. All things are lawful for me. But not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by His power. Do you not know that your bodies are are members of Christ. Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. 
So the Corinthian view. What is, what is the Corinthian view? Well, Paul quotes two phrases that the Corinthians loved to use to justify some of their behavior. And you'll notice them in verse 12. And, uh, and they're in quotation marks. They're in quotation marks because what Paul is doing is he's referencing Corinthian phraseology. And the phraseology was this. All things are lawful for me, the Corinthians said. And it sounds very Pauline, doesn't it? It sounds like something Paul would have said. And you know what? No doubt he did teach the doctrines of grace. And Paul did teach the ultimate fulfillment of Christ fulfilling the law. And so there was some truth in this statement, but it's a half-truth. And Paul rebuts this initial quotation where they are saying, all things are lawful for me, they said. And then he says, but not all things are helpful. You see, what they were probably doing is distorting Paul's theology of grace. Distorting Paul's theology of grace, twisting it to suit their own ends. And so Paul pushes back and he says, are you, are you really wanting to say that? Are you really wanting to say all things, including sex with prostitutes, is lawful? And Paul's reply, if you look at in verse 12, but then he says, but not everything is helpful on the one hand. And then he says it again, all things are lawful for me. But it's probably going to dominate you, he says. In other words, this ideology that you're wanting to promote, what's the ideology? The ideology is I am free to live as I please. Isn't that the message of Christianity? We are now free. We're free to do as we please. And then Paul says, no, 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 you've misunderstood grace. You've misunderstood grace because that live as you please isn't always helpful. In, in fact, it's often harmful. And what it often leads to, especially in a sexual revolution, is it leads to enslavement, not freedom. And so the claim that everything is lawful to live as you please really falls apart when the consequences come home to roost, don't they? When the consequences of sexual immorality, when the consequences of a sexual revolution come home to roost, we quickly discover that the so-called sexual freedom, do as you please, is neither helpful nor freeing. In fact, it's enslaving. And all we need to do is look at the world around us and study the world history. When it comes to sexual revolutions and sexual immorality, what do we find? We find brokenness. We find pain and hardship and we find destruction and destroyed families and broken lives. And so Paul pushes back and he says, no, 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 Corinthians, you've got the wrong view of the body. The second phrase that he quotes, we could say a whole lot more about that, but we don't have time. The second phrase that was popular in Corinth was verse 13. And Paul again quotes their phrase. He says, food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. In other words, they were saying, but Paul, hunger is just a bodily appetite. And if I'm hungry, what do I do? I eat. And so in the same way, here's the argument, in the same way, sex is merely a bodily appetite. And so if the bodily appetite is around, aroused, surely we eat, have sex. It's all just biological, they said. It's all just a bodily impulse. 
And so what was this ethic that they were trying to pronounce? Well, it was based in ancient Greek philosophy. And ancient Greek philosophy uh, kind of viewed the body as a prison of the soul. The, the, the body was, was held captive. The soul was held captive, sorry, in the body. And the body was, 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 was kind of inhibiting all that the soul would want to express and, and live out. And so there were different views of the body. And in ancient Greek philosophy, uh, certain people thought that the only way they could free the soul was to deny the body, to deny the body and even almost embrace affliction. And we see some of that even creeping into, into early church history, you know, the, the early monks and, and offshoots of that, where you would literally inflict bodily harm upon yourself in order to gain or, or, or reach certain heights spiritually. And so the body was treated harshly, and the harsher the treatment of the body, the freer the soul would be. That was one view. Whereas on the other hand, others said, and this is more the Corinthian view, was that the, well, the, if the body really doesn't matter and bodily appetites are indifferent or irrelevant, then who cares? Let's just do whatever we like with our bodies. If you're hungry, eat. If you want to have sex, then have sex. Let's just indulge. It doesn't really matter because the body doesn't matter. And so we have to ask the question, well, how did the Corinthians lose their way so easily? How did they let this Corinthian view infiltrate the church so easily? Well, no doubt they obviously grew up in this culture. Paul arrives two years earlier. He plants this church. He preaches the gospel. He gives them a whole new ethic. But what happens is that the cultural pressures begin to mount. Cultural pressure begins to mount and compromise begins to creep in. And this is the way sin works. Sin works like this. It's at first overlooked. It's overlooked. It's, it's, it's really just over there. And, uh, and we don't want to necessarily call it out. We just want to leave it alone. We, we don't really want to address it. It's simply just overlooked. And eventually the next step is that it's tolerated. And so at first it's overlooked and then we just begin to tolerate it because we've overlooked it. That's why we now can tolerate it is because we've overlooked it. We haven't addressed it. And not that we want to be meanies or bullies, but we want to just be honest. And we don't want to tolerate it, but now we're tolerating it. And what happens after that is that we begin to taste it. And so we overlook it, then we tolerate it, and then we begin to taste it. And people in the church are now tasting. They're dabbling in the sins that have been overlooked. They're tasting it. And then what happens is that we actually begin to affirm it. We affirm it. It's no longer sin because now we've tasted it. And you know what happens when you taste sin? It tastes good initially. It tastes good. It, it, it it's, it's, gives you different expressions and feelings. And you feel at first free, as we said earlier, initially. And the end goal is that it's then celebrated. And this is the slippery slope of the Corinthian problem. But how does it speak to our modern day? Well, it speaks powerfully, doesn't it? It speaks directly into our cultural moment. I think, and I submit to you, that sexual freedom is the golden cow of our generation. And any Christian, if you're a Christian here today, if, if, you, if you're a Christian and you're upholding and, and, and wanting to hold fast to, 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 to traditional biblical views of sexuality, well, it's... It's difficult, isn't it? Firstly, it's very difficult in our day and age because we're going to be scolded as intolerant or, or, or narrow-minded. 
So what are we to do? Well, what's the Christian view? What is the Christian view? We've, we've addressed the Corinthian view. What is the Christian view? And I just want to say here that we're not just reflecting here on sexual immorality. I want to suggest that, that many people actually struggle with body image. That we are living in a day and age. I've worked in some schools in Port Elizabeth. I was on the, the SGB of a, a, a massive girls-only school uh, for about five years. And half, if not more than half, of the issues that we dealt with were related to body image struggles. And I think that goes without saying. But body image insecurities are a huge problem in our day and age. Many of our young people, many people in general, are tormented by stereotypes of beauty. And we are told that you need to look a certain way and behave a certain way if you are to fit in and be accepted. And I think what Paul presents us here is a godly vision, a godly vision of how we are to view the human body. So let's look at them. The first one he suggests is that the body is for the Lord. Look at verse 13 and 14. We know the first part. We've already dealt with it. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. And God will destroy both one and the other. He then says the body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. The first thing he wants to tell you is that your body is for the Lord. Your body, not just your spirit. I think sometimes as Christians we think, well, this part of me belongs to the Lord. I want to remind you today that God's word says your body is for the Lord. Not just your heart, not just your soul or your spirit, but your body is for the Lord. The, the Lord gives the body beautiful gifts of children the lord does that he gives the body the lord gives and the lord takes away he says yeah god will destroy both one and the other both that which sustains the body food and that which will end your life and that is the taking away of the sustaining of your body you see because the lord is in control the lord is sovereign over your body now, as Christians, sometimes we, we wrestle with that because we think that Christianity is all just abstractly spiritual. And I'm here now reminding you this morning that Christianity is very practical and very material. That your body is for the Lord. And he proves that to us because the Lord takes on a body. That's what he says. The body is not meant for sexual immorality. And he has his argument, but the Lord, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And so the Lord himself, the Lord Jesus Christ, enters into a body. He takes on flesh, the incarnation. That's how important the body is for the Lord. He himself is clothed in humanity. And then his body, his bodily impulses, his bodily desires, the whole argument of food for the stomach and stomach for food, Jesus shows us a better way. He is able to sustain his bodily appetites and is without sin in his body. And then the body of Christ is destroyed in death. Jesus is crucified and his body is destroyed. But the argument here is that the Lord 
took on a body, but look at verse 14, and God raised the Lord, and here's the point, and will also raise us up by his power. And so the body, your body, here's the point, your body is not just for this life. Your body will one day die, but as a believer, your body will be raised at the return of Christ. And we get to live out our eternal life in a body, this body, a glorified body, yes, nonetheless, praise God for that, but it's in a body. We are not going to have an eternal life in a bodiless existence. This is how important the body is. The body is for the Lord. And so your body, with all of its weaknesses and all of its frailties and all of its inadequacies and all of its imperfections, I want to say to you today, your body is for the Lord. Settle your insecurities about your body. God gave you the body. God wants you to worship Him with your body. Romans 12 tells us, present what? Your bodies. Present your bodies to the Lord as a living sacrifice. Your body is for the Lord. That's the first thing he says. Again, so much we could say. The second thing he says is that your body is united with Christ. Look at verse 15. He says, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never, he says. Let's let that sink in for a moment. Your body, again, your body, not just your soul, not just your mind, your body is united to Christ. You know, often we think of, you know, how are we mystically joined to Jesus? Well, here he tells us that your body is a member of Christ. Not just your spirit, not just your soul. We are mystically, miraculously united to Christ. And so whatever the society tells you, whatever culture wants to tell you, that, that, that there are, there's such a thing as casual sex, it's a lie. There's no, nothing casual about it. It's not just your soul. It's not just your emotions. But it's your body. And your body is united to Christ. This is not casual at all. This is not just a soul tie. It's a body tie. And Paul quotes Genesis 2, the famous marriage verse. Do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. In other words, his point is that sex is designed by God for marriage. And the marriage is to be kept pure between one man and one woman for life. And so his argument is if you are joined to Christ and you are not yet married, or if you are married, it is an abomination to go and sleep with someone who's not, with your, not your wife or someone who's not your partner for life in marriage. To casually join yourself to anyone outside of marriage is to take Jesus with you, as a Christian, to take Jesus with you into that context. And so what he's saying is that sexual sin for a believer, is profoundly dishonoring for Jesus because he's with you right there. He's with you. The third thing he tells us is that we are the temple, your body, and this one we know well, your body, verse 19, do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? 
We know this argument. Each Christian individually is the dwelling place of the Holy Spirit. Not just your heart again, not just your soul, but your body. Your body. This makes our bodies, church, sacred spaces. Our bodies are sacred spaces. What we put into them, what we put onto them, what we listen to, what we watch. I don't want to go all fundamentalistic on you this, this morning, and, and many have lost the plot in this area. But there is a reminder here that we are the dwelling place of God. We are the temples of the Holy Spirit, and we are to honor the Lord with our bodies. Which is his final point, for point four. You have been bought by God, verse 19 and 20. You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. This truth really flies against the modern notion of personal autonomy, doesn't it? You know, the world has, 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 has really embraced this idea of, of uh, you can be whatever you want to be. And the Bible tells us as believers, we're not our own. We do not define who we are. God does. We belong to Him. You were bought with a price. What price? The, the, the sacrifice of Christ. The, 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 the lifting up of the Son of God as a suffering servant for our sins. And so we do, we do not decide what we want to be. We embrace the body that the Lord has given to us. We live in the body that we have been gifted with. We live out our devotion. We live out our service to Christ. We live out our days in worship of God in a body that He's gifted us with. And we are to glorify God in the body. And so, yes, we are to treat it well, but not worship it. We are to, to, to live in it and and. and Behave in it in such a way that reflects the fact that it's, although it's a gift, it's not, I, I belong to God. This body actually belongs to Him. It was purchased at the cross. And so I want to just bring all these thoughts together now. And I want us to reflect on how Paul actually began this argument in verse 9 and 10. Because this is the more controversial aspect of it. Because now we know how God feels about our bodies, especially in light of sexual immorality. Verse 9, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. It's pretty all-inclusive. He, he's not listing all sins, but he's giving a good go at various sins. He's not ranking them. We've got gossip. We've got drunkenness. We've got greed. We've got homosexuality. We've got idolatry. We've got all forms of sexual immorality. And we've got a problem, right? We've got a problem because... We know how God feels about these sins. And so the question is, what, is, what hope do we have? And verse 11 jumps out. Verse 11 jumps out and it says, And such were some of you, Paul says. As such were some of you, but you were what? Washed. 
You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. What an amazing statement. What a statement of hope and grace. And such were some of you. In other words, the church, all churches, every church throughout the ages, every single church is made up of people who are converted people, radically changed people. That's what they were. Every church is a congregation of converted sinners. And we are the first to confess it. That was us, he says. And such were some of you. And people are putting up their hands saying, yes, that was me. I was the greedy. And yes, someone at the back, I was the homosexual. And I was the swindler. And I was this and I was that. Because this is what the church is. This is our testimony. We are sinners saved by God. And such were some of you. We are a congregation of people who've been rescued by lavish God, by incredible grace. Notice it says that He washed us. It's okay to, to, to see yourself previously as dirty because in the gospel there comes washing. He wants to wash you. He wants to sanctify you, make you holy, rescue you from that previous way of life. He's going to justify you. You don't have to justify yourself. You don't have to come up with catchphrases like, all things are lawful for me now. Food for the stomach. No, no, no. Jesus is going to justify you. You can stand under His grace and He will justify you. How? Confess. Confess. That was me. That was me, but now I've repented and I've believed. Listen, church, if we, if we minimize sin, which is why verses 9 and 10 are difficult, right? They're difficult. These people will not inherit the kingdom of God. Bam. It's difficult. But let me just say this. If we minimize sin, we minimize the cross. If we minimize sin, we reduce the Savior's work. If the church tries to take away people's sin, we keep God from doing his job. May we not do that. The liberal church is robbing God of his glory by trying to remove and reduce sin. No, we're not glorying in sin, not at all. But we call it for what it is because God makes it very clear what pleases him. And such were some of us. I end with this. The center of Christianity is the cross. The place where sin was paid for. And if sin is no longer a threat, then there's no longer any value in the cross. Because what are we being saved from? I think that these verses not only are instructing us on how to view the body, but they are instructing us on how to be clear about sin in a winsome, healthy way. Because we can know what pleases God, and therefore we can know how to glorify God. But secondly, these verses also remind us that no one is beyond the reach of God's grace. No one. There they are, all of them listed. The, from what we would think in our own understanding, oh, those are the worst, these are the least. No, no, no. Paul just lists them all together, and he's reminding us that no one is beyond the reach of grace. Such were some of you, but you were washed, he says. 
you were washed. God loves to take guilty sinners and make them clean. I said I was closing. One last story. The story of a young boy in Southampton on the south coast of England. And uh, he loved to go with his dad to the docks and watch the ships go by. And, uh, and he, one day, his dad bought him a beautiful piece of oak. And he started to carve a wooden ship out of this block of wood. And it took the little boy many, many years with his dad's help. And they eventually carved out a little floating uh, wooden ship. And he would go down to the, to, the, to the harbor in Southampton. And he would put it on the waters. And they would sail it out. And then it would come back. And his dad and him had this wonderful bond around this boat. And it's, it was a lot of hard work and effort to get this thing to actually work, to actually float. And, uh, and one day they went down and a strong wind came from the wrong direction. And eventually this boat was taken away, never to be seen again. And this young boy was absolutely heartbroken, distraught. And by, when he got home, he ran upstairs to his bedroom, dived onto his bed and sobbed and sobbed and sobbed. The story goes that uh, one day him and his dad were walking through the high street in Southampton and as they were walking a couple of months later, they walked past the thrift, thrift store and in the window of the thrift store was his boat. Somebody had found it and sold it on and there it was, this boat was there in the window and so he ran into the store and he said, sir, 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 that's my boat, can I please have it? And the guy looked at him and said, yes, for 10 pounds. And so he was devastated and he went to his dad and his dad said okay well we're going to have to we're going to have to do something we're going to have to work and you're going to do garden chores and you're going to help mom in the kitchen and we're going to we're going to earn some money and so weeks and weeks went by and he saved and he worked and he saved and he worked and he got his money together and he was just hoping that no one else had bought it and he went back to the shop and he took the money he took the 10 pounds and he laid it on the counter and the guy went and got the boat and he got the boat and he brought it to the little boy and the little boy held the boat in his arms and he said now you are twice mine because I made you and now I bought you. And I want to say that's what God wants to say to us today. I made you. And maybe things have gone wrong. Maybe things of this world have invaded your life and there's hurt and hardship. But Jesus wants to say to you today, not only did I make you, but I want to buy you. Your body, your life belongs to me. Amen. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for your incredible grace. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God the Father. And we pray that that grace and that love would wash over us even now. We know that when it comes to these issues of the body and body image and sexual sin and, and all forms of sin of any kind, Lord, we are, we are needy people. We need you. We are the first to confess such were some of us, Lord. We needed the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. We need the cross. We need salvation. And so, Father, I pray that this message would not only be helpful to shape how we view the body as Christians, but that, Lord, you would actually do some deep healing in all of our hearts. And not only for us seated here, Lord, but for many others that we know. We pray that we would be a means of grace to people out there that we know. 
And it's not going to help by minimizing sin. No, that, that doesn't help at all. Because Jesus, you want to wash the sinner. That's what you are best at. You haven't come to call the righteous. You've come to call the unrighteous. You haven't come to call the clean, but the unclean. And so we pray, Lord, that you would help us to not minimize sin. We also don't want to demonize it. But we also don't want to reduce it to something that it's not. Because we see the wonder of the gospel at work. That you love to wash and you love to sanctify and you love to justify sinners. And so, Lord, we pray for your spirit to bring healing in our own lives, in our own hearts. But through us also to others, we pray. In Jesus' name we ask.